Welcome to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Audio Blog, where we strive to share an authentic interpretation of Mason's life work. We thank you for joining us and hope you enjoy the program. A Dangerous Adventure by Art Middlecoff. So, you know, one thing that I find kind of interesting is that uh, Pokemon is back. So, I mean, I think it's quite extraordinary that uh, here this, this like, uh, kind of pop game phenomenon that we thought was a fad is, is back again, and it's Pokemon Go. And I'm just curious, is anybody here, does anybody here play Pokemon Go? Once? So, um, you know, it, it's kind of interesting in our, in our culture. Do you guys think it's odd a little bit when adults play Pokemon Go? Um, I know of a grown man whose main hobbies, and this is true, a grown man whose main hobbies at the age of 34 are Pokemon and video games. And when I say that this man's hobby is video games, I don't mean just, you know, like a casual video game. I mean, this is a guy, 34-year-old man, who will stay up all night, like literally all night video games, where he will start at 9 9 p.m., and he'll still be playing when the sun rises. And we'll do this not once or twice, but a couple of times. Um, I know this man quite well because that man is me. And the year is 2002, and my oldest and only child was three years old. And I had already introduced him to video games at that age, so he knew how to blow up... uh, Russian tanks, and he knew how to drive a Sherman. But outside of teaching him how to do that, I had no, absolutely no idea how we would educate this little boy. I just knew one thing for sure. The one thing that I knew for sure was that I was not going to homeschool. Frankly, I thought the few homeschoolers that I knew, I frankly, I thought that they were weird. not only the kids, but also the parents. Um, but, if, you know, consider the source. I'm, <laughs> I mean, I'm collecting Pokemon cards and stuff like that, so let's... <laughs> so we've got to look at how we, how we, you know, what are, how we calibrate the scale here. Um, but, uh, you know, Barbara and I, Barbara, we had something in common. She also um, had absolutely no intention of homeschooling. She had a concept in her mind of what homeschoolers were like, um, of that kind of subculture, and it was not for her. She had absolutely, there was no way that she was going to enter into that and be one of those people. So in that year of 2002, I went on vacation to uh, the Shaker Village, a Shaker Village with my father-in-law. And um, it was kind of a family vacation, an intergenerational family vacation. And I remember being quite excited to go to this Shaker Village because I had just gotten a new cartridge game for my Game Boy system, a new Pokemon game. And since I wasn't working and since, you know, there's people, you know, for Barbara to talk to and stuff, I'd have a little bit of extra time to, you know, figure out this new game and get ahead on it. And so my father-in-law... Um, you know, he pulled me aside, and he said, Art, uh, how do you intend to educate your children? And uh, it was a good question. Um, my father had passed away. 
um, and both of my grandfathers. And so my father-in-law was, was pretty much, you know, the, the one kind of male authority figure in my life. And so I had to take the question seriously. And uh, I said, you know, um, I have no idea. I have no idea how I'm going to, how we're going to educate our kids. We're thinking maybe a Christian private school, maybe a public school. Um, and he said, Art, you need to homeschool. <laughs> and uh, he said, Art, will you just do one thing for me? Um, I just want you to read a book. And I figured, okay, you know, it's my father-in-law. It's the closest thing I have to a father. He's asking me a simple thing, reading a book. How hard can that be? I said, you bet. I'll go ahead and read that book. And the book he gave me was called Homeschooling the Right Choice by Christopher Klicka, who is an attorney for the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. And uh, so I'm a software developer by trade, and uh, so I work for a software company. And uh, I was working in the Chicago area, and I had to make a trip out to Microsoft in, uh, in Redmond, Washington. And um, it's about a four-hour flight. And so I took the book with me. And on the flight to Seattle, I read half of the book. And then I had my meetings at Microsoft. And then on the flight back, I read the second half of the book. And as the plane was touching down at O'Hare Airport, I got out a piece of paper and I began to plan my new life because I had decided that I was going to homeschool. But I faced a major challenge. See, sometimes I have, I hear from uh, mothers who ask me for advice on how to convince their husband to let them homeschool. And uh, honestly, I have no idea, but if you're a dad and you want advice on how to convince your wife to homeschool, I can tell you a little bit about my story and about how I went about approaching that. See, because for me, my decision to homeschool is entirely based on input from two men, my father-in-law and an attorney named Chris Klicka. It's as simple as that. But for approaching my wife, Barbara, I might as well have asked her, I might as well have sat her down and said, "Hun." I'd like you to become a lawyer. Or I might as well have sat her down and said, "Hun, I'd like you to become a programmer and come work for my company as a software developer. Because I was effectively asking her to sign up for a brand new career for the next two decades of her life. And she had other plans for her life. She wasn't planning on me just coming home from the airport and telling her that she has a new career for the next 20 years. But Barbara loves me, and she's the kind of woman who will always find a way to make me happy. And so even if it means surrendering all her hopes and plans that she had for herself. And so she set aside everything that she thought she was going to be. And she said, because I love you, I will homeschool. But I just have one condition. If we're going to homeschool, can we please not just create school in our home? Can we please not just import textbooks and the way things happen in the public school system and do that in our kitchen? Can we please do something that takes advantage of being at home? And I said, yes, we can absolutely do that. I figured that that was the least I could do for her. So I began to do my own research. Because this was my thing, she was doing it as a favor for me, 
This was the one condition. So I decided to do my own research into educational models. And so after a few months, I stumbled across Charlotte Mason, and I decided that Charlotte Mason was the method that we were going to use. And so again, another conversation. Hun, we're going to do Charlotte Mason. But I said, and I promised, that I would help her to carry the load. This was not going to be something that I was simply going to delegate to her and have her do. I was going to help her every step of the way. Now, honestly, um, that is the only reason why I looked at Charlotte Mason. I wanted to have a method to teach my kids, a method that would be amenable to my wife. And so I began to learn about Charlotte Mason because I wanted to get guidance on what to do in those hours of my day where we were going to be teaching. The way that I was planning on helping Barbara was to be teaching in the evening. And I figured that maybe two hours in the evening, maybe one hour in the evening, I could do some lessons and I could do it the Charlotte Mason way. And if we were nice and efficient, I could finish by nine o'clock and then I could get online and I could blow up a few more tanks. Um, it wasn't going to be a huge intrusion into my life. Um, but in, in chemistry, we can think of two different types of chemicals in the world. Maybe we can classify them as, as inert chemicals and reactive chemicals. And inert chemicals, they stay inside pretty much whatever container you want to put them in. So they're very safe. So you can take your inert chemical and you can put it in a glass or a test tube and come back a year later and it'll still be happily sitting there in your glass or your test tube. But then there are chemicals that are highly reactive, like very strong acids. And you have to be very careful with reactive chemicals because if you're not careful, you put a reactive chemical inside a container and it starts to eat away at that container because it doesn't want to stay inside. It starts to react with the container. The container starts to change. And then if you're not careful, it starts to get out and it starts to wreak havoc on its surroundings. And I discovered, much to my surprise, that Charlotte Mason's ideas are reactive. I had intended to keep them in a specific container of my life called homeschooling. But the ideas started to eat their way through the container. And the first sign that the chemical had leaked out of the homeschool container and started to wreak havoc on me is one day when I arrived at work and I parked my car in the parking lot and I stepped out and I knew immediately that something was different because I stepped outside of my car and all I could hear was birds. There were birds everywhere making such a loud sound and I thought, my goodness, this is like day five of creation, take two. God just <laughs> created birds. Uh, they were everywhere, and the song was overwhelming, and I couldn't escape from it. And I thought, where did all these birds come from? And then after a, a few moments of reflection, I realized that those birds had actually always been there. For years, I had been getting out of my car in that same parking lot, and those same birds had been there, but I did not hear them. But now I had ears to hear because something was starting to happen to me. We started to do picture study. And, uh, you know, how dangerous could this be? Looking at 
pieces of paper with art prints. I mean, I've been going to museums all my life. I mean, I went to public school for sure, but we did field trips to the National Gallery of Art because I grew up in Maryland. So I've seen these paintings before. So we're just going to do, this is been there, done that. Let's go look at these prints. And so our first artist was Vermeer. Here's a guy who paints pictures of people sitting. So I'm like, okay, you know, it's part of a Charlotte Mason education, so we'll go spend some time looking at pictures of individual people sitting. But then I took my family from Chicago to D.C. to visit my mom, and we went to the National Gallery of Art. And I thought to myself, wouldn't it be, you know, interesting to go see if there's any Vermeers at the National Gallery of Art now that we've been doing this picture study for all this time? And we went to the National Gallery of Art, and I saw Vermeer's A Lady Writing. There she is. She's a person, and she's sitting. And yet when I approached that painting, and when I looked at it very closely, I saw that there was a light that was emanating from the canvas. And I said to myself, what is the physics of this? This, this can't happen. Light can't emanate out of a painting. And I stood there transfixed, and I realized that there is something very, very special about art. We went to a later room, and we saw Monet's woman with a parasol. And I stared at this painting, it was about 10 feet away, and I stared, and I stared, and I stared, and I stared at it so long that I thought I could feel the breeze from the painting reach my face. And then we did composer study. And I had a little bit of an interest in classical music. I had one or two composers that I really liked. But the rotation said that we were supposed to do Henry Purcell. I'm like, of all the composers that we could do, why would we have to do Henry Purcell? Because he's this Renaissance-era guy is just doing mostly choral music. There's no instruments. Um, it's all kind of boring. And so I said, Barbara, can we please just do somebody else besides Purcell? And she said, no, you know, this is part of, you know, we're supposed to follow the rotation. We're supposed to follow the curriculum. We need to do the composer that we've been assigned to do. So reluctantly, I forced myself to do it, and I listened to Purcell, and I fell in love with the beauty of the choral music of the Renaissance era. Until I was at the point where a friend of mine came over and I said, Dan, you have got to listen to this piece of music by Henry Purcell. <laughs> it is absolutely beautiful. The reactive chemical of Charlotte Mason's ideas did something else to me. The chemicals started to erode away my desire for video games. I never made a resolution. There was never a point when I said to myself, you know what, I didn't look at my mirror and say, you know what, Art, you should stop playing video games. Instead, I think what happened was that my heart became so filled with nature and music and literature and art just from doing lessons with my children that there was no room left in my heart to desire video games. And so I haven't played a, a video game or had even the slightest interest in playing one in probably 10 years. And when changes like that start to happen, 
I started to realize and grasp that Charlotte Mason was a lifestyle and not a simple way of homeschooling. And with this discovery that uh, Charlotte Mason is a lifestyle and not just a way to educate, I wanted to tell the world about it. I wanted people to know that there was something special here. And so I created a blog. And I called my blog The Enchanted Garden. The Enchanted Garden. Because that's what I felt like my life had become. I had awoken into a world of beauty. And whether it was paintings or music or nature, there was magic everywhere. And I was living in an enchanted garden. But actually, I didn't call it the enchanted garden. I used the French translation of the phrase, le jardin ferique. And the main quote featured on this site, the kind of banner quote, was this from Charlotte Mason. When we think for a moment how we must admire the goodness of God in placing us in a world so exceedingly full of beauty, whether it be what we call nature or of what we call art, and in giving us that sense of beauty which enables us to see and hear and to be, as it were, suffused with pleasure at a single beautiful effect brought to our ear or our eye. That was my enchanted garden. And I called it Le Jardin Ferique because that's the name of a piece of music by Maurice Ravel who's one of the composers that I did like. And I'd like to play for you a clip of Le Jardin Ferique by Ravel because this piece of music explains what my life to me had become and how it felt. title tune for my blog, The Enchanted Garden. I joined an email study group that was reading through Mason's six volumes. And the way the group worked is we read a chapter each week and we shared our reflections over email. And so with the help of this group, I worked my way through the entire six volume set, writing my reflection on every single chapter week after week. And in 2007, I started to attend an Anglican church. And after about a year, I decided that I wanted to try to use Charlotte Mason's methods in a Sunday school class for the youth in my Anglican church. And so I ordered a book, which was and still is recommended in Charlotte Mason's circles. And this book is called In God's Garden by Amy Steedman. And it's a book that has each chapter tells the story of a particular saint in history. And so many people think of it as a living, a living book. And so in my Sunday school class, we would read stories from this living book. We sowed living ideas. But the living ideas that we sowed didn't reach just the children. The living ideas that we sowed reached me too. In fact, they reached me just in time. Because in this book, I was introduced to one particular saint, and I was intrigued, and I began to read more about her on my own. And uh, on January 21st of 2009, I was in my new office at work, and I had only been in that office for about seven weeks. And it was an interior office that had no windows. 
And around 11 in the morning, my cell phone rang, and as was my habit, I picked up my Bluetooth headset, put it in my ear, and turned around in my swivel chair so that I would not be facing my computer screen, so that I could pay attention to the person I was talking to. I answered the phone, and it was Barbara, my wife, my best friend, my homeschooling companion. She had just had a routine medical screen that morning, and I assumed that she was going to tell me just how it went, but instead she said, I have cancer. And so the first words out of my mouth were, honey, you're going to be fine. It's going to be fine. But the more we learned over the next month, the more I realized that she wasn't going to be fine. Because all that could be determined in the first screen was that she had stage two cancer. She had to go back for a second screen. And the doctor verified that she had stage three cancer. So that meant then that she had to have a CT scan. And the CT scan confirmed that she had stage four cancer. Cancer had spread to her liver. And I knew, statistically, that stage four cancer, of the kind that she had been diagnosed with, typically results in death. That's the typical outcome. And so when I learned that her cancer had spread and that she had stage four cancer, I wrote, this is what I wrote, uh, I tried to express my feelings, not really for an audience, not for anyone to read, but writing out sort of a poem was the best way that I could kind of give shape to my feelings. And I wrote this. To me, you are a voice, a song, and a whisper. To me, you are the beauty I see from outside. To me, you are a presence, a soul that speaks life to me. They tell me you are something else some complex machine made up of cells. They show me pictures and scans. They show me it is true. They say that one of these cells has taken a sinister turn. It grows within you like a pernicious spell. Doctors speak of cures, of killing a disease. But all I can see is that life as I know it has started to end. So for me, everything turned dark. It was as if I had lived in a world of color only to wake up one day and to only be able to see black and white. Nothing gave me joy. I looked at my blog, my so-called enchanted garden. Storm clouds had come overhead and had poured down torrential rains. And the rains washed away all the topsoil from my garden and revealed bones. See, I had planted my garden on top of a graveyard, and there were bones of dead people everywhere that I used to see flowers. And my enchanted garden filled me with horror. I looked at my website, and it mocked me. I felt like such a fool. So I took my website off the internet, and I deleted it, and I deleted the backup. I deleted the archive. It is completely gone. You can't find it anywhere. You can't find it on yesterday's World Wide Web. It is completely gone without a trace. I quit the Charlotte Mason email discussion group. I took my Charlotte Mason books, and I put them on the shelf. And I found myself a new, stronger container that could take Charlotte Mason and keep it inside a little box, which was my homeschool hours, 
and I despised Monet, and I despised Ravel, and I went to my pastor, and I said, Pastor, Charlotte Mason has nothing to say to me anymore. So I continued on homeschooling, but the dangerous adventure, so-called, for me was over. I stepped out on my own journey into the night, and I left Charlotte Mason behind. And Barbara began chemotherapy. She had to go through 12 cycles of two weeks each. The way it worked is that she would spend two days continuously connected to an IV that would fill her body with poison. Of course, she couldn't spend two, 48 hours in the hospital, so she took it home. She took the IV home. And there in our bedroom, I watched the poison kill the cancer cells, but it seemed that those poisons wanted to do much more than kill cancer. It seemed like every single round killed a bit of Barbara's soul along the way. And it was a horror to me when I could be with her and see this happening. But when I couldn't be with her, it was even worse. And so one round of the chemotherapy, I had to travel to New Orleans on business. And so she came home, and Barbara took the infusion of the chemicals on her own. Not only could I not heal her, but I could not even comfort her. And so I sat on the floor of my hotel room at night in New Orleans, and again I tried to express my feelings in words. And I wrote this. The farther you were away the closer you seemed to be. Your thoughts were next to mine. The room was completely dark. I reached out to you, but instead of your fingers, I felt a small plastic tube. I followed it along, hoping it would lead me to you. I thought I could hear you breathing, but it was just the whir of a small metal machine pumping its potion into the blackness of night. So there in that hotel room, for the very first time in my entire life, I could not pray. I could not find God. Everywhere I looked around me, all I saw was blackness and death. In the 14th century, blackness and death came to a city in Italy. That city was called Siena, and an eyewitness described it. It was in May that the first deaths occurred in Siena. It was all so dreadful, so cruel, that I hardly know where to begin to describe the terror that reigned. One felt the very sight of so much suffering would drive one crazy. There are no words to relate these horrors. And he is fortunate who has never faced such ghastliness. People died almost as they stood. A swelling under the arm and one in the groin, and still speaking, the victim fell down dead. Father fled from son, wife from husband, and brother forsook brother. Each deserted the other, leaving him to his fate, for their diseased breath was sufficient to spread the infection. 
Indeed, it seemed as the very sight of the sick was infectious. Loneliness encompassed the dying. For there was nobody who would bury the dead, either for money or for old friendship's sake. If they could do so, blood relations would carry their own dead to the grave without priest, without ceremony, without funeral bell. In many parts of the city, great collective graves were dug, for men were dying day and night in the hundreds. Into such a pit, the corpses were thrown until it was full, when it would be shoveled level while another pit was dug. I buried all my five sons with my own hand. They were among those who were left too near the surface so that dogs came and snatched them up, devouring their bodies on the open streets. No man was there who would weep for his dead, for each awaited his own last hour. Death claimed so many that men thought that the end of the world was at hand. Why did they think the end of the world was at hand? Because God's love was gone. How could a loving God be present when that was happening? God had left Siena behind. So people fled the city, and they fled the disease, and they gave up all hope. But one young, uneducated woman, aged only 26 years old, did not flee. She did not give up hope. She was filled with the bright radiance of faith, and she believed in the love of God. And so she walked right into the middle of the black death. And she laid her hands on the sick and the dying, and she prayed for children and friends and old people. And she took with her her very best friend, her confessor, Blessed Raymond of Capua. And Blessed Raymond describes his journey into darkness when he went with this woman into the heart of the plague. Raymond writes this, The plague had broken out in Siena. I thought it incumbent upon me for the good of souls to expose myself to the risk of death. And I decided not to neglect any of the sick, even though, as is known, Whenever the plague appears, it infects the atmosphere and the people. But I told myself that Christ was a good deal more powerful than physicians and grace more powerful than nature. I also saw that many people were leaving the city so that the dying were being left without spiritual advice or help. And so from charity, which obliged me to love the souls of my neighbors more than my own body, I made a firm decision to visit as many of the sick as I could and comfort and instruct them. And this I did with God's help and according to the grace granted me. But I was almost alone in the big city and so many were the calls I had from the sick that I was always leaving the monastery and hardly had time to eat and sleep or even breathe. One night after I had my usual brief rest, I was about to get up and say lauds when I felt a great pain on my thigh. Touching it with my hand, I found it was a swelling. I was so scared that I didn't have the courage to get up, and I began to think that I was dying. I longed for daylight to come. 
In the meantime, the inevitable fever and headache came down upon me, and then I really did get worried. The next morning, I felt certain symptoms over my whole body, which made me fear that I was going to die from suffocation by sickness, a thing that I had already seen happen to a number of people. And so there, Blessed Raymond lay, and he was dying, and he knew that he was dying. And there was this 26-year-old woman who had brought her very best friend to that place, and now there he is dying. How long would he live? This 26-year-old girl, her name was Catherine Benincasa, and I knew her. I knew her because I had met her in God's garden. She pointed to the cross, and she said that there is, in the cross, there is proof of God's love. And there on the floor of the hotel room, I could not pray, but I thought, about Catherine, and I thought about the light of her faith, and I thought to myself, that person could help me. Could she be my intermediary? But then I read the words that she herself wrote in 1376, words that might as well have been addressed directly to me. And she said, I am giving you this remedy of loving God without anything between you and him. But if you still want poor wretched me as intermediary, I want to show you where to find me without being separated from this true love. Go with the dear loving Magdalene to the most sweet venerable cross. There you will find the Lamb and me. And there you can graze and feed and fulfill your desires. This is the way I want you to seek me and every created thing. Let this cross be your standard and comfort. She told me to go with Mary Magdalene to the most sweet, venerable cross. And so there in a hotel room in New Orleans, with my beloved dying far away, I came to Jesus. Mary Magdalene loved Jesus. She had lost her dignity. But Jesus had given it back to her. Jesus had changed her life. And yet at the height of all of that gifting that she had given her, she stood and watched him die. And she watched all of her hopes die with him. And so devastated and distraught, she came to the tomb. And she discovered a power greater than death. And in those months of Lent, I discovered another Renaissance composer. This Renaissance composer's name was Francisco Guerrero, and he wrote a song about Mary Magdalene when she came to that tomb. And when I would listen to that song, I would forget about death, and instead, I would think about life. And I'd like to play for you that song about Mary Magdalene coming to the tomb. the writings of this Catherine Benincasa of Siena every day, and her writings could not tell me why Barbara had cancer, 
Her writings could not tell me how I would cope if Barbara were to leave this world. Her writings did not tell me to brace myself like a man and take it. Rather, her writings painted a picture. She wrote, and God has given us a written book. I mean the word, God's son. This book was written on the wood of the cross, not with ink, but with blood. And its illuminated initials are Christ's wonderful, sacred wounds. Catherine's writings were for me a window through which I could see the crucified Christ. Catherine didn't give me answers. She gave me a person. And her picture of Christ broke through the deep clouds which covered me. Giotto also painted a picture of Christ, and I got to see this picture. And in this picture, I didn't see ink. I didn't see paint. I saw blood. I saw Christ's wonderful sacred wounds. And Giotto's picture of Christ broke through the deep clouds which covered me. I kept homeschooling during this trial. Every Saturday, I would go on a nature walk with my son Palmer, and a naturalist would teach us about the native wildflowers of the Wisconsin prairie. My friend and pastor took some pictures of these flowers for us. We would do that on Saturday, and then on Sunday, we would go to church, and we celebrated the Eucharist every Sunday. And I would struggle to pray, but in preparation for the Lord's Supper, we would always sing the Hosanna. Images of the sunlight and flowers from the day before would flash into my mind. I was living in a world of black and white, but during the Hosanna, I would close my eyes and I would see color.
color that broke through the darkness for me was the color of the flowers of the prairie. And it wasn't until last year at the LER here in this place that I understood why. Before there was ever cancer or death, there was a garden of Eden. And that garden was paradise. And Adam named the animals, and they're the same animals we see around us today. And the flowers that we see are the same flowers that Adam saw. God created flowers to make paradise beautiful. And when you go outside and look at nature, you're looking at the decorations of heaven. So every Sunday, in my mind's eye, the flowers showed me the goodness of God. The oncologist told Barbara that most people can't make it through all 12 rounds of chemotherapy. As the chemotherapy goes on, you start to lose feeling in your nerve endings and your extremities, your fingers and your toes. They said that if you take too much, you could permanently damage those nerve endings and forever lose the feeling in your fingers and in your toes. But Barbara is brave and she's courageous. I asked her to homeschool with me and she said she would. And I asked her to live for me. And so she drank deep of all 12 rounds. And when it was all done, she went in for her second CT scan. And this would tell us whether the chemotherapy had been effective or whether the cancer had spread. When it was time for the results, amazingly enough, I had to be in Melbourne, Australia for the first time. 
Her meeting with the doctor took place on the last day of my trip, my first time in Australia. And I had planned to visit a cathedral on my way to the airport because at this cathedral in downtown Melbourne, there's a statue of Catherine Benincasa of Siena. So the night before, I would find out the results. I could not sleep. Got up and I packed. And I took the streetcar into the city. And I was in that streetcar when Barbara was meeting with the oncologist. And my heart was pounding and my mind was spinning and the world was going every direction around me. And in the 14th century, remember, blessed Raymond, he lay dying. He knew he was dying. But in his moment of desperation, he thought of Catherine and he writes about what happens next. When Catherine arrived, she saw the state that I was in. And realizing what the matter was, she knelt down by the bed. And putting her hand on my forehead, she began to pray silently. I saw her go into ecstasy, as on other occasions. And I waited for something unusual to happen for the good of my soul and body. Then I began to feel better. And bit by bit, I recovered. Before Catherine returned to her senses, I was quite better. As soon as she had obtained complete grace for me from her heavenly bridegroom, knowing that I was cured, she returned to her senses and ordered a meal to be prepared for me. When I got up, I found myself as well as if I had never been ill. Seeing that I was better, Catherine said, Go and work for the good of souls and give thanks to the highest for freeing you from this danger. The streetcar dropped me off at the cathedral and I approached the statue. And it depicts a moment when Jesus in a vision appears to Catherine and he offers her two crowns. He has a crown of jewels and he has a crown of thorns. And he says to her, Catherine, choose one crown for this life and one crown for the next. And without hesitation, she reached for the crown of thorns. And in this statue, she reaches for the crown of thorns and she grasps it so tightly that you can see the thorns pierce her hands. And so standing before that statue, the doctor's appointment was done. And I called up Barbara on my cell phone and the phone that I held in my hand was for me like that crown of thorns. I was ready for it to pierce my hand. I was ready for it to pierce my soul. Was I courageous? Not in the least. I was absolutely terrified of what Barbara might tell me, but I looked at Catherine's pierced hand and I decided that if Christ could pierce her hand, then he could pierce mine too. And I heard Barbara's voice and she said, I met with the doctor and the cancer is gone. So I got back and I wrote to my email group that I had been studying Mason six volumes with. And here's what I wrote. Dear friends, thank you for asking about how we're doing. And thank you to everyone who has been praying for us. Last year in January, my wife Barbara was diagnosed with stage four cancer. This led to surgery followed by six months of chemotherapy. That season was extremely difficult for me. And the nine poems I wrote over those six months chronicle the struggle I experienced. By the grace of God, at the end of the chemotherapy, a CAT scan revealed no sign of cancer in Barbara's body. Subsequent scans every three months continue to show no sign of cancer. 
Barbara has been gradually recovering from the stress of chemotherapy, and now she is filled with life and strength. Our family has been touched by God, and I have been changed into a different person. During Barbara's treatment, she was unable to homeschool, but her father came to our house every day and carried out a Charlotte Mason education with our children. My children used a digital recorder to record their narrations, which I listened to on my long drive to and from the office. By God's grace, I was able to continue teaching them math, Bible, and French in the evenings. Through all of this, I tried to be faithful to Charlotte Mason's principles. In the months before Barbara's cancer, I experienced a personal awakening as a result of reading Charlotte Mason's books. Miss Mason had given me much more than a method for educating my children. She opened my eyes to beauty. I was touched by art and nature. I created a blog which I called Le Jardin Farique, The Enchanted Garden. A painting by Monet was featured on the front page. That was because my life felt like an enchanted garden. Everywhere I was surrounded by beauty. But when the cancer came, I was changed again. And the things which once filled me with such pleasure now seemed dry and empty. Gone were Monet and Ravel and opera and poems. It was like waking up to discover that my sense of taste had vanished and that all food had become bland. Instead, I drank deeply of the words of a medieval saint, and I found that Christ's sufferings overflow into our lives. My Savior wore a crown of thorns, and now he was sharing his crown with me. Christ on the cross became my exquisite comfort. His blood was still warm, and his blood was fresh for me. I discovered the Renaissance music of Francesco Guerrero. It was all I could listen to. When I heard the choir sing his music, I found a light that could penetrate darkness, and in this light I saw the face of my Savior. Through an unexpected turn of events, I was able to visit Florence with Barbara, and together we went to the church of Santa Maria Novella, and there we saw the famous fresco by Andrea di Bonaito. In front of that fresco, I prayed that God would make me faithful to teach my children, and in the church I saw the crucifix by Giotto. There was my Savior who shared his sufferings with me. Once per month, I went to a plant identification class with my son. It was on Saturdays. Invariably, the next morning, we sang the Hosanna. Images of the sunlight and flowers from the day before would flash into my mind. When I sang that the whole earth is full of his glory, there could be no darkness of doubt. This second transformation made me doubt the reality of my first Charlotte Mason awakening. Did Charlotte Mason speak only in Le Jardin Ferique? What happens when dark clouds hover over the garden path at Giverny? These questions troubled me until the childlike conference this past June. There I began to see that beauty is found not only in sunlight and magic, and I realized that art is best when it is not opaque. The best art is a window. The demon of cancer revealed to me that I did not want art. I wanted Christ. Guerrero and Giotto showed his face to me. When I looked back at Mason's writings, I noticed this. Quote, there are always those present with us whom God whispers in the ear, through whom he sends a direct message to the rest. Among these messengers are the great painters who interpret to us some of the meanings of life. To read their messages aright is a thing due from us. But this, like other good gifts, does not come by nature. It is the reward of humble, patient study. 
It is not in a day or a year that Fra Angelico will tell us of the beauty of holiness, that Giotto will confide his interpretation of the meaning of life, that Malay will tell us of the simplicity and dignity belong to the labor on the soil, that Rembrandt will show us the sweetness of humanity and many a commonplace countenance, quote. Not all literature gives us life. Mason wrote, quote, but not the works of every playwright and novelist are good for example of life and instruction in manners, quote. I finished reading the six volumes just before January of last year. In the months that followed, I found little solace in Mason's writings. At the conference in June, I confided about this to a friend. Perhaps I was expecting too much from Charlotte, I said. Perhaps Miss Mason could only be my guide during the day, but not at night. But after the conference, it finally dawned on me, what was the light that did shine on me during my struggle? It was a medieval saint, a Renaissance composer, an Italian artist, an American flower. How would I have discovered any of these if not for Charlotte Mason? Without the relationships she established, how could the Spirit of God had ever used them to breathe life into me? I now understand that Charlotte Mason is not my living water, but thank God she showed me where I could find it. Blessings in Christ, art. As homeschooling parents, we often think that what really matters are the testable skills like math and language arts. We sometimes think of picture study and composer study and nature study as fluff or extras. But these really are part of the feast that God has prepared for us. And when we raise our children on these things, we are truly equipping them for the journey of life. And it's a journey that takes them not only through green pastures, but it's a journey that also takes them through the valley of the shadow of death. Charlotte Mason wrote, quote, we must sustain a child's inner life with ideas as we sustain his body with food. Probably he will reject nine-tenths of the ideas we offer as he makes use of only a small proportion of his bodily food, rejecting the rest. He's an eclectic. He may choose this or that. Our business is to supply him with due abundance and variety and his to take what he needs. Quote. So history, stories, art, music, it's not fluff. Thanks to Charlotte Mason, I discovered a banquet and I took what I needed. And so Charlotte Mason gave me my life back, not once, but twice. And I have a new blog now. It's not about an enchanted garden. It's called Charlotte Mason Poetry. Charlotte Mason laid out a method, and I like to think of it as a signpost. It points the way to living water for you and your family. And my new blog is dedicated to showing people how to find that signpost. I don't read all the things that have been written about me, but I've read some of them. 
People have said that I'm a downer. They've called me a Charlotte Mason legalist. They've said I'm unqualified. They say that I'm not a scholar. I've been called discourteous and unkind. I don't know. Maybe some of that is true. For all I know, maybe all of it is true. But it doesn't really matter to me. What matters to me is that there is living water for you and for your children, and there is a signpost that shows families where to find it, and I will do everything in my power to keep that signpost clean and pure. Amen. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Audio Blog. We hope you enjoyed the program. 